Well, hey everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I am truly honored to have you along for the ride. Uh, today we're in the final week of a series that we've called, This is the Way. And in case you're joining us for the first time, I need to alert you to something, because this week at the gym, I was working out, obviously, right? And a Keystone friend came up to me and he goes, he was here last week, he goes, dude, you missed it. Your This Is The Way series. Love the talk. He goes, but you didn't realize it's from The Mandalorian. And I just looked at him with disgust because as you may remember, in week one, I did a whole shtick about The Mandalorian thing. And he said, oh. <laughs> so if you're here for the first time, we know about The Mandalorian tie-in. Go back and listen to week one. You'll hear all about it. It's, it's great. So, but anyway, uh, the series This Is The Way is all about... Not, of course, the Mandalorian, but what it looks like not just to believe in Jesus, but to actually follow him. And, and again, in case you're joining us for the first time, you should know I began this series of talks a couple weeks ago by making a really interesting observation. It goes like this. You can be a Christian and not follow the way of Jesus. In other words, you can be fully convinced about who Jesus is and be certain where you stand with God because of what Jesus accomplished for you when he died on the cross, but not be committed to following the way of life that he modeled. And as I've mentioned, if that at all describes your faith journey, then you should know, well, not only are you in good company, but also you should know that your experience is nothing like that of Jesus' first followers. In fact, for them, following Jesus wasn't initially about believing something at all. It was about learning to live like Jesus, a, a new way of being and doing and serving and loving and even becoming in the world. And those first disciples thought of themselves as Jesus' apprentices who didn't just want to know what their teacher knew, but who wanted to be the same kind of person that he was in the world. In fact, and this may surprise you, those first Christians didn't even call themselves Christians. That designation of them was made by people outside of the faith. The first Christians called themselves the people of the way, as in the people of the Jesus way, the people who were living like Jesus. All that to say the idea that someone could believe in Jesus and not order their life after his would have been completely foreign to the first Christians. In fact, near the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, he specifically invited his first disciples after learning from him to begin to follow his way of life. And he said it this way. He said, enter through the narrow gate he said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road, and the little Greek word actually means way. So wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And then he says, but small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And Jesus wasn't talking about life after this life. He was talking about the fact that his way is the way to the life that we really want right here and right now. A life marked with things like peace and love and self-control and purpose and fulfillment and contentment and thriving marriages and restored relationships and flourishing faith. That's the life we want. But, but Jesus would say, here's the thing. My way isn't the way that will come naturally to you. 
It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. And that's why many people don't find it. Not because they don't have access to it, but because you don't drift to the Jesus way. You have to choose it. But he says, if you choose to follow me, you can find the life that you were designed to live. I said a bit differently, Jesus doesn't just want to be your savior. He also wants to be your teacher. He wants to teach you a new way to be human. Okay, so now that said, what I want to do with our time together today is sort of continue the conversation that we started last week. And if you were with us, you may recall that I noted that as incredible an opportunity as it is to follow after Jesus, well, there's a cost to following the narrow way of Jesus. Jesus described it to his first followers this way. He said, well, whoever wants to be my disciple, this is like the fine print, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, like say no to yourself, that's hard. He says, and take up your cross daily and follow me. And I would argue that's harder. As we noted last week when Jesus said this, um, well, he hadn't yet died on a cross. So none of those first disciples would have thought that he was going to offer them salvation from their sins by dying on the cross. To them, well, in the Roman world in the first century, the cross sort of represented losing. Like they would have thought, well, come on, Jesus, if, if we take up our crosses daily, then it's almost like you want us to choose to lose in small ways in this life. And if they had said that to Jesus, then I'm pretty sure he would have responded with something like, yeah, that's actually the cost if you really want to follow me. To follow my way is to sort of choose to lose. I want you to let other people win. I want you to surrender your will for other people's will. I want you to let other people go first. I want you to give grace where it's not deserved. I want you to let other people get credit that they don't deserve. I want you to lay down your preferences for the sake of other people. And just so we're clear, I think Jesus would say this, you need to understand that uh, this isn't weak. There's a big difference between choosing to lose and losing. Choosing to lose, choosing to let someone else win does not make you a loser, but choosing to let someone else win will make you more like Jesus because that's sort of what it means to follow his way. And of course, um, I've been letting this stuff knock around in my soul for quite a while now, and uh, I actually had an opportunity this week uh, to, to put this into practice, and I didn't want to. Here's the story. So my wife and I years ago decided that when each of our boys was about to turn 13, we would take them, I would take them away on an overnight to talk birds and bees. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so what we did is we found a curriculum uh, published, uh, you know, online, and it's like a series of talks you can listen to and then sort of interact with your kid. And so it takes like four hours to get through it. So I reasoned if I had four hours in the car, then obviously we're going to go to a Michigan football game. There you go, right? So um, I had reserved us a hotel room about three months ago uh, near the stadium, and we were going to go Friday night and spend the night and then go to the game. Well, about seven o'clock at night, we were heading out of town, and my phone rang. And the uh, city from which the number was coming was the city in which I had booked a hotel. So I thought, oh, I probably should pick up. So I did. And on the other end of the line was an individual we'll call Trevor, because that was his name. And Trevor informed me that due to the fact that the hotel had been overbooked, and even though my rate was non-refundable, they could not honor my reservation, and that I needed to get in touch with Orbitz about a refund. Now, in this moment, 
there were some things that I wanted to do. They included calling down fire from heaven to consume the hotel, right? <laughs> and maybe Trevor. But in that moment, I realized something. That is not the way. And I was, you know, preparing this talk. So it's like, okay, before I open my mouth, before I say anything, what would it look like for me to let Trevor win, even though I don't want to? And what came to me was just accept this, figure out a new plan, because Trevor is probably making minimum wage and drew the short straw and didn't want to call you anyway. So don't ruin Trevor's evening because he ruined your evening. And so I simply said to Trevor, you have five people you have to call. He said, yes. I said, I hope they will all be as gracious as we are choosing to be. I will take care of this. Have a wonderful night. And there was this long, awkward silence. And he goes, thank you. <laughs> Click. That was it. I didn't want to, but for me, that's what it looked like in a small way to choose to lose. And uh, so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to unpack, well, kind of what I believe to be the proper posture in life of someone who seeks to follow the narrow way of Jesus. And, and to that end, what I want to do is listen in on a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers. Uh, the conversation took place a few days before Jesus was arrested and eventually crucified, and the conversation was initiated by Jesus in response to an argument that his disciples had been having that he had overheard about, and you're going to love this, which one of them was the greatest. Now, you're all hanging out with Jesus, right? And so obviously, you know, you want to figure out who is number two and, and onwards. But that's what they were doing, and Jesus overheard them. Uh, specifically, they were talking about which one of them would hold the highest position in the earthly kingdom that they believed that Jesus had come to establish. See, they had become convinced that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And to be fair to them, he was. But unfortunately, they were mistaken about what that meant, See, they believed that God had sent Jesus and Jesus would one day in the not too distant future enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, mobilize the Jewish people in an armed rebellion against Rome and reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. That's what they believed. They also believed that because God had sent Jesus, the revolution would be radically successful and he would ascend to the throne. So from their perspective, that was a given. They were just wondering, uh, you know, which one of them was going to be greatest in this new earthly kingdom. And so that's the context in which Jesus had a very memorable conversation with them about his desire for their posture in life. And in his account of the life of Jesus, a man named John set up that conversation for us this way. He wrote, it was just before the Passover festival when Jesus was crucified during Passover Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He says the evening meal was in progress. Jesus knew, and this is key, that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So just notice with me that before relaying the details of Jesus' conversation with his first followers, John wanted his readers to understand that there was no question as to the identity of the most powerful person in the room that night. No question as to who had the most authority or significance. And here's why he wanted us to be crystal clear about that. It's because of what happened next. John tells us, So, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And then after that, he poured water 
into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. In other words, Jesus got down and began to wash the feet of his apprentices. And if you've been in church, you've heard this story a million times, but, but you just got to understand, in the first century, this sort of thing didn't happen like this. See, foot washing was very common because people walked around all day on dusty roads wearing sandals without socks, okay? And by the way, this is a public service announcement because I love you. That's how you're supposed to wear sandals, okay? Like without socks. Don't nudge the person next to you. It's awkward, right? So in fact, if you're someone who's grown accustomed to wearing sandals with socks... We ha- I talked to Hannah this week, our director of spiritual formation. We have a brand new support group starting next week <laughs> to help you break the habit. Because let's be honest, wearing socks with sandals is just weird, okay? Anyway, for obvious reasons, people in the first century washed their feet at the end of each day. And if they were visiting someone else's home, then that someone would either provide a servant to wash the feet of their guests or provide the basin and towel for them to wash their own feet. It was a matter of hospitality. However, and this is critical to understanding Jesus' actions here, a person of status like Jesus would never wash the feet of someone else. Like ever. To do so would be a complete inversion of social norms. Nonetheless, that night Jesus rose from the table and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin and then washed and dried the feet of his apprentices. I'm telling you, the disciples would have been stunned. As I imagine, you could have heard a pin drop as Jesus moved from disciple to disciple. That is, until Jesus reached Peter. And Peter said what everyone else was thinking. He said, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? In other words, come on, Jesus. There is no universe in which this makes sense. This is not the way things are done. It's backwards. It's upside down. And in response, Jesus looked back at Peter and he said, you do not realize now what I'm doing. Later, you'll understand. And it's subtle, but with the statement, Jesus was referring to the cross. He knew it was coming. Peter didn't. He was basically saying, Peter, foot washing is nothing compared to what I'm about to do for you. I mean, if this makes you uncomfortable, just wait. You can't begin to imagine the humiliation that I will soon endure in order to demonstrate my love and care for you. You don't get it now, but stay tuned. You will. Well, not surprisingly, Peter was still confused by Jesus' actions, and he sort of reiterated his resistance to the idea of Jesus washing his feet. It's it's like he looked at Jesus and he said, but this is not the way. This is not how things are supposed to work. There's, There's a normal way, a comfortable way that honors your position and status. Peter just couldn't believe his rabbi would wash his feet. He had no category for what he was experiencing. The same hands that that healed the sick were now washing his feet. And so Jesus told him, he said, Peter, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. And again, Peter wouldn't have understood what Jesus was saying, but but again, Jesus was talking about the cross. 
He's talking about the fact that not long after this conversation, he would die on the cross in order to pay for Peter's sins and offer to pay for the sins of the world. And that act would allow Peter to be relationally connected to Jesus forever. And so Peter responded, he wanted to be with Jesus forever. And so he actually jumps in and said, okay, Jesus, you convinced me. Now I want you to wash not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And I love that, don't you? Yeah, it's like, Jesus, if, okay, if this is what it takes, I don't get it, but if this is what it takes, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna find me a bath, I'm gonna jump in head first. See, because I love you, I'm committed to you, and I'm with you, so let's go. And, and, and in response, Jesus, with lots of compassion, and because I think he appreciated Peter's passion, moved past Peter's proposed excesses and said this. He said, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet and their whole body is clean. And you, and by the way, he's turned now and talked to all the disciples, and y'all, thank you, y'all are clean, though not every one of you. So he looks at his 12 guys, and he says, you all are clean, but not every one of you. And then John tells us, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. In other words, Jesus told Peter that he knew his heart and he knew that Peter wanted to be with him, but he also knew that one of the other disciples was going to betray him. See, in this moment, Jesus already knew about Judas. And hold on to that, because we're going to come back to it in a moment. But, but for now, as he continued his account, John reported that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And then he spoke to them. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And just notice in this, in this passage, Jesus uses two words to describe himself. He says, Lord and teacher. So they would have understood, Lord just means boss, but he basically says, guys, if I am your Lord and I've washed your feet, then none of you is above foot washing. And if I'm your teacher and I've washed your feet, then you need to do as I have done because you're seeking to be like me. I've established a precedent and you are to follow. This is the way. So do for one another what I have done for you. Moreover, and he, and he gives him a little bit more, he says, very truly I tell you, no servant, that's you, is greater than his master, that, that's me. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, Jesus looks at his followers and says, listen, you're never gonna graduate from being my apprentices because you'll never be greater than me because God has granted me the authority and the power and the status and I got down to wash your feet. I am like no other king. I will kneel and serve you, and then I want you to do as I have done. But I think there's something else here. Return with me for a moment to Judas, because I want you to think about this. Even he had his feet washed by Jesus. In other words, Jesus washed Judas' feet and he did it right before Judas betrayed him. Like that's shocking. But I think Jesus also intended it to be instructive because he wanted his guys to know that they were to be servants of all. Like 
no disclaimers, no exceptions, no excuses. And then he said to them, now that you have know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And that's true of all of Jesus' teaching, right? It's the doing that makes the difference, not just the knowing. He says, you want to be blessed, you need to do this. And the Greek word blessed here doesn't talk about material blessings. It talks about contentment. It's like Jesus says, listen, the life that you want at your core, the satisfying life that your Father intends for you can be found by following my way. And so now this week, um, I was talking to the team and we're like, how could we make this super practical and memorable? And so by way of application, we decided to do something kind of interesting, never done it before at Keystone. But what we, we did was during the service, uh, second half, we've actually set up 25 foot washing stations out in the, no, not really. I was like, and y'all need to find a partner. And it's like, awkward. And like the, the guy visiting for the first time is like, my beeper just went off. I'm out of here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's urgent. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, no, just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. My point though, is that those first disciples of Jesus certainly would have had moments when they literally washed other people's feet, people who were considered beneath them on the social ladder. But I think Jesus also intended foot washing as a metaphor. He wanted it to guide his disciples as they pursued a posture in life that would reflect his posture on the day that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. He wanted them and he wants us to live with humility. In other words, he wants his followers to engage each day with the understanding that no act of service is beneath them and no person is beneath them. To live with humility is to live with an eagerness to serve other people and it means to make yourself available to others no matter their status or position and to functionally forget about asking the question, what's in it for me? And instead ask, how can I help you? To live with humility is to value others because according to Jesus, every single person that you and I will ever meet is someone for whom Jesus died. And if he's our Lord and he served, then none of us is above serving. And if he's our teacher and he served, then we are to follow his example because once again, this is the way. This is the counterintuitive, countercultural, seemingly counterproductive way of Jesus. And so I was thinking about this, this humility thing this week. And I mean, if we're honest, the people who live with humility, aren't they the people who we'd rather be around? <laughs> like they're the people with whom you most want to be friends. They're the people who you most want to marry and who you want your kids to marry. They're the people with whom you want to work and the people you want to hire if you're an employer. They're, they're the people who you most admire and who most inspire you. It's almost like the, the posture of humility is a game changer on so many levels. And I think that's why Jesus identified it as the way. It's so powerful. And so that said, I want to pause for a minute and challenge you to consider where in your life you most need to adjust your posture. And for many of us, if we're being honest, it's in the way we relate to our spouse. I mean, it started out great, and over the years or decades, it's kind of slid to a spot where, man, we might need to make 
an adjustment back towards humility and service. So maybe it's spouse. For others of us, it might be work. I mean, maybe we sit in the corner office and, and we need to develop the habit of showing the people that we supervise that really there's nothing beneath us. We're here to serve too because that's the Jesus way. And so I just got to ask you, where is it for you? Where do you need to adjust your posture in more to, in more to closely align with the way of Jesus? And before you answer, I want to show you one more thing that Jesus said shortly after he washed his disciples' feet. And this is actually something we talk about a lot around here. Um, and it goes like this. Jesus looked at them and he said, a new command I give you. Love one another. And they would have said, that's not new. Old Testament, that's in there. Jesus is like, I'm not done talking. Listen up. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. So not just love one another, but love one another like I have loved you. And then he goes on, by this, by this radical self-sacrificial love, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In fact, if you love one another as I have loved you, they're going to stop and stare because the world has never seen anything like this before. The love that you demonstrate for other people will be a sign unto the world that you've decided to order your life after mine. And I'm telling you, with this, in this moment, Jesus summarized all of his other instructions to his first followers. To love one another as he loved them. And we got to remember when he said this, he had just washed their feet and he would soon die on a cross. So it's almost like he said to them, love is the way. It's the umbrella under which everything else falls. So as you approach your life and your relationships with humility and service, I want you to seek out the good for others and in others, just like I sought out the good for you and in you. Show love, my kind of love with no strings attached. Show love without boundaries or limits or conditions. That's what I was willing to do for you, and that is the way, and that's how everyone will know that you are my disciple. Said a bit differently, Jesus' final instructions to his followers, and this is so simple, and it's just stunning how often this goes off the rails, but he told them two things. He said, listen, I want you to live with humility, and I want you to love everyone. Live with humility, and love everyone. Okay, so um, before I let you go, I, d I have one more question I want to ask you, and it's something I've been thinking about all week. Can you imagine what would happen in our world if everyone who believed in Jesus actually did this? Our world would be unrecognizable. Can you imagine what would happen in our families and in our relationships and in our community and in our nation I mean, people everywhere would flourish. So would marriages. And the reputation of the church would be a lot better than it is right now, right? It's like, I'm telling you, everything changes when people who believe in Jesus actually start to live like Jesus. And God knows that because 2,000 years ago, he sent Jesus not just to offer us the chance to restore peace in our relationship with him through Jesus' blood on the cross, but he also came. He sent his son to teach us a new way to live right here and right now, a better way, a better way than the way of the world.
And he essentially said to people, people like you and me, this is the way. And then he said to people, people like you and me, come follow me. Friends, that is the blueprint for the Christian life that you and I have been invited to be a part of. It's a way of life that changes everything. And as a pastor, it's what I so want for every single one of us. And so with that, uh, we've reached the end of this series and uh, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll pray for us. Uh, And before I do, um, if you're here this morning and you just need to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, we have some friends under the screen to your left who would love to meet with you. Um, just offer you a word of encouragement or a word of prayer. But for the rest of us, let me close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the offer of salvation from sin based on our belief in what your son accomplished on the cross. And thank you as well for the invitation to learn a new and better way of life right here And right now, I pray that this week, um, these thoughts would linger and through your spirit, you would begin to nudge us in areas of our life where we need to change our posture. And I pray on the other side of these series of conversations, um, each of us would start to look more like Jesus because the world in which we live desperately needs more people who look like Jesus. And as we do, I pray that we would find fulfillment and contentment and peace and that in small ways your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven and so we thank you we thank you for loving us even when we fail we thank you for the grace in which we stand and we thank you for the continued invitation to follow it is in the name of your son our savior the messiah jesus christ we pray and everyone said Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.